chapter 10, verse 17, I think. Yeah, that's where we are. Uh, where are we in Mark? Uh, just a very quick, this mostly uh, geographically, we are not in Galilee anymore. It kind of switches uh, last chapter where we're all of a sudden working our way toward Judea. If you remember, we had uh, Luke gives us a more pointed way that he sets his face toward Jerusalem, and we're going to get this at the end of our text today of kind of another prediction of what's going to happen eventually to him and, and what it all meant. But uh, kind of a three-part sermon looking at uh, some of this that many of you probably have already heard of, but sometimes it's nice to do a little bit deeper dive on some of these things, and uh, we'll, we'll do that a little bit today. So starting in verse 17, let's go through 22 right now. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now Matthew and Luke also have this encounter. As we have said before, John's gospel is almost completely unique, so that's not in there. But in Matthew, they add that he was young, which is obviously somewhat of a relative term. I remember a few years ago, I thought I was young. That's kind of went by the wayside. But, uh, and that he was a ruler, it says in, in Luke, which means he probably was a ruler of a synagogue or had some sort of ruling jurisdiction in Jewish circles. So it was an important guy um, in many ways. And notice he kneels before Jesus, which is kind of cool. I mean, he's showing great respect. And I think he's sincere. You know, sometimes we take these guys and we make them two-dimensional, and it's like, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He thinks riches are... Well, there's more to it than this. It's a good question, too. It's a really good question. But there's one thing going on always in the background when people come up to Jesus is he can see their heart. We can't. And that's always... You know, people used to, we've got better bracelets now. We've got what would honor God. Not that they're better, different. Uh, welcome to get one out there with a little card, what that all means. You know, we used to have the one that was WWJD, right? Uh, and those are good too. But there's a little problem with that one. I think, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would come, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and die for the sins of the world. Go and do likewise. Well, that one's kind of hard. You know, so I in some ways that made sense. In other ways, it doesn't. We can't do, and I can't come up, somebody comes up to you and says a question about theology or life. You don't know their heart. You can't read it. We don't have that ability. Jesus did. And so that's why we probably get this response from him. You know, but think about verse 17. What must I do? Implies he was thinking in terms of Jewish acts of righteousness, which are not bad. Uh, we just, uh, Aaron prayed that, we've, we've sung that, the word righteous, with the word justified. Think about those words, they're big theo theological words, but the idea is, what is your connection with God? What's your relationship with Him? Are you in right relationship? That's righteousness. Are you, does, are you seen as clean and have the white robe, as we read about during the dedication? That's, that's justification. 
something. And what we're going to see is we have this juxtaposed, and since we had a few weeks ago when I was here, we did, it's the same verse we talked about at the dedication. Um, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child cannot enter it. So you've got, on one hand, receiving the kingdom of God like a little child, and on the other hand, the rich young ruler. You know, so you've got these two against each other. And then also he calls him a good teacher, which is nice. I mean, think of people to come up and said, hey, bad teacher. I don't know if you've ever done that in college. Don't do that. Even if they are, it's not going to help your grade, I guarantee you. <laughs> but he calls him good teacher. Uh, and the first part of Jesus' response focuses on this word good. Now, for us, we might be thinking he'll be nitpicky, but the word good in, in Hebrew thought, even if you go back in the Old Testament, only God is good. That, that's very much, and that's kind of what Jesus says. He just kind of repeats what the guy should have already known. So it's a probing question. You know, why do you call me good? There's a lot more going on. If you want to find out why he should have called Jesus good, you just keep reading the Gospels and, of course, read John. You know, <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I am the only way to the Father. I am the light of the world, the bread of life. But he's asking him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's an interesting question. I always think if you were, you know, you were the one listening to this, you know, I, boy, I'd nail this one. I'm like, well, you're good too because you're Yahweh. Well, nobody yet. Most people hadn't figured that part out yet. You know, so he, he's appearing to make a point about his identity. I don't know what exactly he wanted to say. What would have been a good answer from the guy? Well, I said you were good because I'm thinking maybe you are God. That would have been a good answer. It would have been a hard answer. That would have to come from the Spirit and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, I think what Jesus wants us to see, and that's what we sing about and preach about, is God's pure goodness versus imperfection of fallen humanity. That's kind of what Jesus, I think, wants to enter into a conversation with you. You see this back in the testy conversation in the temple in John 8. This is why I said that you will die in your sins because you're imperfect fallen humanity. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. It's just another exclusive claim from John. We get a bunch of them in Mark and the other Gospels. It's it's really the core of the gospel, understanding who Jesus is. It's different. Christianity is different than every other religion. You probably figured that out, haven't you? Judaism has a piece of that. Every other uh, religion, worldview, is what I like to call navel-gazing. I invite you to do that right now. Gaze at your navel. You don't have to show it. Please do not that. If you're a little kid, I guess, go ahead. But, but I mean, what is it? Looking inside ourselves. That's, that's Eastern religion. That's New Age. That's, well, even those religions that tell us that we have to follow a set of rules to, for God to love us. It's still, it's about us, right? And Christianity keeps telling us, no, you've got to look up. Look outside of yourself. A righteousness from God has come. It isn't coming from you. And that's hard to get sometimes because it makes us feel kind of puny, kind of useless. It's like, what must I do? And Jesus eventually gives him what he must do, which is, wow, I'm glad he was talking to him. <laughs> but 
the original question was about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll talk about that in just a minute. But So he has a two-part answer. The first one is about the nature of God and man, and I really think that's where he wants to go. The second part is the role of the law in eternal life. What must I do? The man chooses to focus on the second part. What must be done instead of who he is compared to God? And that's a problem in contemporary Christianity. Don't focus on what you must do, but who you are and who he is. If you don't get that right, the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, think about, you know, in Matthew 16 when Jesus asks, you know, who do you say that I am? That's the biggest question anybody can answer. And you want to get that one right. And once you understand who he is, and we saw that from the Revelation Scripture, you know, the Lamb, worthy to open the seals, the one who, why is he called a Lamb? You know, because he gave himself up, as we've sung about and celebrated. He's the worthy one because he's perfect. That's figuring out who Jesus is is step one. Once you understand who Jesus is, think about it. We'll go back to namesake, Isaiah, which means what? this thing on? Yahweh is salvation, right? Isaiah, good dude, probably one of the best dudes in, in Israel in the 7th century BP, BC. What happens when he encounters God in Isaiah 6? Yeah. Get away from me for I'm a, I'm a man of an unclean people and I'm a, I have unclean lips and he's on his belly not even looking up. You know, I thought, you know, if you had that dream or that vision where you saw God, he's like, that'd be so cool. But what would you probably do? Isaiah knew that. This guy's starting to, and I think this guy knew that about Yahweh, but that's again, who is Jesus? That's where we're going. So the man's answer is, is plausible from a human point of view. I think, you know, probabilistically, well, let's just go with any, anybody want to pick a sin? Talking too long? No. Uh, what, what do you want? <laughs> I don't, I'll just go with stealing, you know, because none of us do that. Um, you know, is it possible for you to not steal today? What about tomorrow? So you go on, I mean, you can, and then you can put any sin you want in there. So, you know, just using probability, you can not do it, right? Yeah. But yet, they seem to kind of build up on us. But then there's that one that I'm supposed to not think bad things about people who are annoying. You know, not me, because I'm not annoying, but other people are. <laughs> then it starts, we get these what we call sins of commission, you know, stealing. Then there's sins of omission. You know, you could have went over and maybe, how you doing? You know, I mean, thinking about the other person. So it's like it starts to build up, and you're like, okay. I am glad that the gospel is not, say, do everything perfect and I'll let you in. Because it's really hard to do. But yet we're asked to do that, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is up with that? Well, how do we get that? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes in Romans, and are justified. Okay, that's what we want. That's what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to see himself justified in God's eyes. Well, how do you do that? By his grace as a gift. Oh, the gospel's so cool, isn't it? It's like just when you think this is really, really hard, it becomes quite easy, except for the whole giving up your life thing, which really isn't that hard when you think about it. 
And what is this grace all about? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it comes through him. So yes, we're supposed to be perfect, but we all know that. And you're going to yell this out, I know, because I just told you to do it. Are you blameless before God? Yeah, and, and it's not because we're cocky, right? It's because his righteousness gets imputed to us. Do we always act like we're blameless? Well, no, that's, that's what he's talking about here. So Jesus demands that the man in verse 21 starts with his love. We kind of missed this. I kind of paused, so maybe you grabbed it. And Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. I mean, I mean I, I'm not even going to try to do the facial expression, but in, if you're thinking about, if you've got a picture of Jesus, what do you think he looked like? I mean, it had to be really contemplative and cool. He loved him. He loved him, so he told him what he really needed. You know, love, how did we, we define that? You know, it's used all the time. The two great verses, and I bo got them both in the, the first one's in the NLT, then in the NIV. The NLT sometimes will give you a little bit twist on things, because we, we kind of know John 3.16, right? For this is how God loved the world. That's really a really good translation. It's not really, it's the old King James, it's like, well, God so loved the world. It's like, I didn't love you guys so much. That's not what that's saying. It's saying this is how he showed it. Well, how did he do that? He gave his one and only son, and everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a really good verse. We know that one. Football games, you get that up, and that's a great verse. But 1 John 3.16, which is not that hard to remember, right? Lose the term. And I love the way the NIV starts. This is how we know what love is. You know, every good song, every good poem, almost every good movie, that's what it's all about, right? But do we really know what love is? Well, I guess we should. And then we just have to read the rest. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know what that summarizes, right? What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of summarized here. So, so if nothing else you remember, you got a good definition of love, don't you? So what's his specific requirement of this man? It shows that receiving eternal life is primarily about relational trust, not legal doing. I said this uh, at a wedding I did yesterday, and then I mentioned it at the Bible study today. It's like, I, you know, it's not that innovative, but I, we've heard this before, but I thought we could use this. This could be a really good evangelistic tool or just talking to people. You know, you've heard it said, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's kind of what we're saying here, isn't it? It's not what you know, don't do this, do this, which is good, but it's who you know. And once you know the who, then the what takes care of itself. This is good. I should have put that in the sermon. It's really good in, this, in the notes. But you can read Galatians 3. I'll let you do that as an assignment. Uh, uh, verses 10 through 14 really hit this hard. And really what it's saying is if we get righteousness through the works of the law, then Jesus died for nothing. And if you have a theology that Jesus' crucifixion is not necessary, your theology is whacked out. That's a theological term, you know, whacked out. Not good. So how does one inherit, gain possession of this? That's what he's asking. How do I gain possession of this? Our works are his grace. It's interesting because some of you are thinking, well, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 we know this. But we just, it, the reminder, 
you know, it's kind of like we, we don't have communion this week. We'll have it in a couple weeks. But should we just do that once in our life and just forget doing it? Or should we just celebrate Easter once? Should we just sing about the crucifixion once? Because, you know, we got it now. That's good if you're just trying to get your get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not good if you want to have a relationship with God. <laughs> you know, you want to keep showing up. You can't. So p- perhaps if the man would have entered into a discussion about the, his goodness versus God's goodness, he could have understood that the one he talked to would do the work of salvation. Maybe the, the conversation would have been, because look what he asked him to do. I don't know how, they would, you think they would have kicked Judas out? You know, follow me, Judas, you're out, sorry. Betrayal will come later, but you can't follow me anymore. I don't know how would he have, or we'd had 13. That would have messed up. Baker's dozen instead of the, but he did ask him to follow him, didn't he? And more than likely, Jesus knew what he was going to say. But to look into this quickly about eternal life, we hear this all the time. You know, that's what Jesus talks about. I don't know if Jesus ever says, follow me and you'll go to heaven. I mean, he doesn't not say that, but that's not his point. Follow me and you'll be part of the kingdom. Follow me and you'll have eternal life. You know, heaven gets thrown in, but that's not his focus. You know, we don't want to be so heavenly minded we're no earthly good, right? Just, if you believe in Jesus, when do you get this eternal life? You already have it. That's kind of cool. Well, what does it mean? It's ultimately more about the quality of life than its duration. You're eternal. How many years in eternity? A lot. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And what's he talking about in John 10? I know this scripture gets taken out of context. It's about eternal life. Read later. My sheep hear my voice, which is about somebody coming to Christ. And I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a really strong statement, isn't it? That's what abundant life looks like. You follow the shepherd, the good shepherd. And there's only one other option, right? Matthew 25. And those who do not follow him will go away to eternal, how long? Eternal punishment. But the righteous into, seems like the duration is fairly similar. It's not the duration that's the key here. It's where you are, and who you're with. So eternal punishment, no presence of God, a continued corrupt fallen human nature, and dwelling in spiritual darkness forever. Both places are eternal. So what's the difference? Well, it's quality. Even the worst atheist on earth right now that has hates God and wants to do everything against him is still living in a world where common grace The sun still shines, the rain still falls. Not so in eternity. Nobody's really experienced that yet. I'm I'm hoping all y'all don't. And you know the way, right? You know how to get that. It's the simplest thing you could ever do. And that's what he's asking this guy to do. And I wonder, if if I was going to do a movie, I might have this guy show up at the cross. I might have him one of the 3,000 in Acts 2 that believes. Why not? 
you can do what you want in your movie. You can say that he never believed. But we know he didn't at this time. And just a quick word, really quick. You know, I always say do things in context. Who's getting talked to when it says, sell all you have and follow me? You know, it's so easy for people to say, well, all the scripture is about me and everything. And this one, people say, well, this one isn't about me. Well, it really isn't. But you, I'll just leave you with this, kind of a cliffhanger. What if he did ask you that? I don't even like that, to tell you the truth. What would you say? I think you kind of do anyway, right? Is there anything you hold so tightly onto that you would not let go if that meant not following Jesus? I look around, I like a lot of you would, would do well with that. So uh, that's good news. Yeah, I think God would help us say the right thing. Yeah. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus goes on and says, he looks around, he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But we are smart. We never read just one Bible verse. Because you could read that and say, oh, well. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said them to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. So Jesus is pointing here. He's pointing. There's a shock to the disciples. It's like, how, what? Because in most cultures and in that culture, the, the rich people were the ones that we thought God had put the favor on. But we have to be so careful with this that we don't flip it on its head and say, well, it's only the poor people that he put his favor. I don't think that's true, you know. You know where the richest guy was in Genesis? Abraham, the rich dude. Had a lot of stuff. A lot of nice cars, I bet. Camels and such. Uh, and we look at this, it's, you know, and you've got to be so careful. With God, it's all, all things are possible. Well, God still can't make a married bachelor. You can't make square circle, right? I mean, this is what's logically possible, you know. It's the idea that he can do anything he wants to do. He's omnipotent, unlimited power. Doesn't mean he always exercises it, but he sure can if he wants to. But this is impossible for a person. What must I do? Well, you can't do anything to save yourself. So the disciples are probably still thinking about salvation by doing, not salvation by receiving. And don't think, the could God put a camel through the eye of a needle? Well, I suppose. And there's, you know, some supposed, and it may be historical that there was a small place called the needle that the camels had. I don't know. That's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. But that's not really the point, that God could do that. 
That's not what he's talking about here. It's just that the salvation doesn't come from human effort. It's a category error. Eternal life is not earned. That is your word. Ding, 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 ding. Remember that word. Somebody write this down. Earned. And then put your red line through it. You can't earn salvation. Because you do have to do something, right? Because what was he asked to do, the guy? Follow me. Well, you don't follow somebody by still sitting in your chair, right? you got to get up. It's priorities, and this, is, this gets misquoted. You've probably heard people say that money is the root of all evil. Nope. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And, of course, that never bothers me. That's two sins at once right there. I lied, and I'm greedy. Mm. That's not good. But, you know, it, it can creep up on us so easy. Because it's always somebody else. I'm always that way. It's always those rich people. It's like, you know what? You want to say that when we don't have it, right? <laughs> it's like, well, God must hate that person because they're rich. Some of the nicest people I have ever met, some of the most courageous and deep Christians have a lot of means. I remember one in Austin, that all kind, just amazing broker and be able to make money. And he just keeps shoveling it out, and God keeps shoveling it back in. I think there were like seven missionaries, this family. And the guy was only like 35. Completely did missionaries across. The, they had a map in their kitchen. Seven different missionaries they completely funded. They had a nice house. We had a Bible study in there. Again, and I've met poor people who are quite nasty. And I've done the opposite, right? But we do know when it comes to a gospel that says it can't be about you, it has to be about God, that the riches can cause problems. He didn't say it's easier for a poor person to go there. <laughs> you know, he, it, 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 there is a problem there because a lot of times when we have what we think we need to make us comfortable, we don't need Jesus, right? That's really the problem. But it's the love of money. It's putting that first. And then he teaches about the personal relationships. Then he, he says, you guys... You're going to get treasures you don't even imagine now. You just got to take my word for it. You know, do what I ask and I'll reward you if you trust me. Eventually. And what will these rewards look like? Well, I've studied this quite deeply. I don't know. Still working on it. If you know, let me know. It's, it's kind of ambiguous in there. Something cool. So let's e end up here in these last few verses because he predicts his death uh, this third time. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. He said, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. There's a lot of information in this little piece. Very detailed passion. They're amazed and afraid, maybe because, oh, you're going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you, so why are we going there again? He gives this same demand back in verse 21, as we already read, you know, follow me, even if it means doing this. So, are we supposed to follow his teaching? Yes. How do you do that? Or read your Bible. 
Are we supposed to follow his way of thinking? Well, how do I do that? Well, read your Bible and think about, think like Jesus. He doesn't want to just control your actions. He wants to control your thoughts. Not control in a way of making you a robot, but help you think like him. Should you put him first in your life? Yeah. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Well, how does this begin? Well, just like these guys, you accept and you trust the very thing that Jesus outlines here for his disciples. You have to realize he's got to die. Way back in Genesis 3, we realize the cross is necessary. And this is how the eternal journey with God starts. You acknowledge your guilt. This is your evangelical message if you want it. Know that you're guilty. And all you have to do is compare yourself to Jesus. You're not good. Accept the just payment that he made. The one who is good alone. We call that grace. And then forever continuing a journey with Jesus, we call that gratitude. Following him because we have accepted the grace. Like I said, it's not, yes, it becomes introspective. How can I do better? But because he's already got us into the family. And this is the best news of all. If you follow him, you have eternal life. And that's always good news any day. Let us pray. Father, as we read through these texts, they're so wonderful, they're so pointed. Um, and each one of us probably feels the pain that these disciples did that our Savior had to die because it showed us how much love there was and how much payment there had to be for the sin to be eradicated and our relationship with you opened up. So for each one here, I pray that they understand your gospel. I pray that they want to live it. May they give thanks for the eternal life and try to live a life worthy of the calling by your power, by your spirit. Amen.